Welcome to From the Booth, the podcast sponsored by BYU's International Cinema Program. On this podcast, we preview and analyze the films playing at International Cinema. COVID-19 is going to keep 250 of the Kimball Tower shut down for the rest of the semester, but IC continues on with its online programming, including, of course, this podcast. If you want information about how to sign up to stream the rest of the IC Winter 2020 program, we refer you to our website, ic.byu.edu. Unfortunately, only current BYU students, faculty, and staff will have access to the streaming that we provide, but a good number of the films that we're going to be previewing today can be found on other streaming platforms that might be available to you. I'm Chip Oscarson, co-director of International Cinema. Joining me today to preview the films that will be coming to IC in the last week of our program, I have IC Assistant Director, Marie-Laure Oscarson. Hello, Marie-Laure. Hello, hello. hello. And also IC Co-Director, Mark Yamada. Hey, Mark. Hello, great to be here. Today we're going to be previewing the films that will be showing from the 8th to the 11th of April at International Cinema, or better said, uh, streaming at International Cinema. We remind you that in our preview shows like this one, we promise to give some background and suggest some things to look for, but we won't be giving any spoilers. Uh, those we save for our Week in Review episodes when we talk about the films in a little bit more depth. The films we're going to be talking about today include Too Late to Die Young from 2018, the third feature from Chilean filmmaker Dominga Sotomayor Castillo, uh, set shortly after the fall of the Pinochet regime, Tokyo Godfathers, a Japanese anime from 2003 by Satoshi Kon, Funan, an animated film in French from 2018 by Dennis Doe, set in 1975 Cambodia, and lastly, the Academy Award-nominated documentary from 2019, Honeyland. It's in Macedonian and Turkish by directors Tamra Kotisava and Yubomir Stefanov about the close connections between nature and humanity. This is the last in our semester-long series, Anthropocene Cinema. So let's start with Funan, Marilor. Tell us a little bit about what this film is about and why it's interesting. Okay, so Denis Doe drew on his uh, own family stories for this film. So it is, we can tell, telling the story of his mother. So Shu, the, the mother in the film, represents his own mother. Um, but as well, there's artistic liberties as well. It's not, everything is not true to the story of his mother, but there's other stories that come to join her her own narrative. It's the first feature film, and it got the Best Film Award at the Annecy Festival, it is for older children. Even though it's an anime, we can't say that younger children would enjoy it necessarily. There is the portrayal of violence, even though it's always very tastefully done and off screen, you realize that people are suffering and people are being killed and abused. So we're in the mid 70s in Cambodia, and it's during the Khmer Rouge forced migration that we meet this family when their young children, excuse me, their young boy is separated with his grandmother from the parents and the rest of the family. So the focus is on the parents who are trying to desperately escape the brutality of the work camp to find them again. It's a, it's a beautiful story of, of survival. And I would ask our, our spectators to watch how hope is portrayed in this film. It's an interesting choice, I think, to choose to animate, right, as opposed to live action. Do you think that that was maybe a way of dealing with the horrific violence kind of inherent in the situation to both represent it, but maybe not have to represent it 
so graphically as as one would have to in a in a feature film exactly i think that there's a lot of uh, green parts to this film but because it's anime um there's a, a poetry that 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 can come with with the medium that would have been very hard to represent in the same way with like you know real life actors well let's turn now to tokyo godfathers our second animated film uh, for the week mark how does this fit in with kind of japanese anime more generally yeah this is our um the second film in our kind of mini series on the anime of satoshi kon who is a director that maybe doesn't stand out like miyazaki or some other prominent anime directors but one who kind of brings an interesting style a little bit uh, more realistic uh, in some ways, um, a little bit more gritty style to animation. I think um, as you watch this uh, work of anime and animation, you'll notice that it differs in style. And of course, all anime directors have different styles, but this one in particular differs quite a bit from um, the usual kind of anime style involving characters who are in some ways kind of caricatures. You have kind of Ghibli style with, with characters characters who often have big eyes and big features that are, you know, in some ways influenced by, by Disney, um, kind of early animation, but also there as a way of kind of for expressiveness of emotion. In this work, in Tokyo Godfathers, and really all of, of Satoshi Kon's work, you get a little bit more of a realistic depiction of, of people. Um, you get a very a more subdued color palette, um, not quite the vibrant colors that you get in, in other works of anime. And so the work feels a little bit more uh, gritty and real in that way. And yet uh, Satoshi Kon also takes advantage of kind of what of anime and what it can do in terms of creating um, a little bit more of an imaginative, of, of kind of visually depicting imagination in a way that is more seamless maybe than in, in live action. It's a film that kind of riffs off of the Christmas story. Three wise men who are ironically depicted as homeless uh, men uh, find a baby who's abandoned and desperately try to find uh, the mother. What Satoshi Kon does really well is that he kind of comments on a lot of the social problems of Japan, the things that are kind of marginalized, the people that are marginalized, the homeless problem. Um, you get depictions of immigrants who don't necessarily fit into kind of the mainstream kind of homogenous Japanese society and other kind of marginalized groups and really kind of brings them to the forefront a little bit and helps us kind of see things in a very different way, a little bit like shoplifters from uh, last year that we showed at, at International Cinema. So Yeah, I was, I was wondering about that, actually, if there's a, a kind of connection between Corrieda, you know, that interest in both poverty as well as alternative family structures. Yeah. Um, that this seems to predate that, right? It really does, yeah. And it's interesting how there are some connections there, as you mentioned, this idea of unconventional families, families that are not necessarily your typical nuclear structured family that you know are, are so a part of uh, of Japanese kind of the cultural imaginary and film and things, but also uh, poverty. There's there's kind of this myth in Japan of everybody being um, not too rich and not too poor, everyone kind of being middle class. And because of that, I think, and, and there are, there is a fairly large kind of homeless community, especially in Tokyo. I think these kind of things are swept under the carpet a little bit in an effort to really kind of create this myth of, of universal kind of 
not necessarily prosperity, but at least kind of middle class um, life. And so this anime really kind of draws attention to it, but not in a way that feels too heavy. Um, it still kind of uses animation as a way of maybe lightening the mood of, of kind of creating imaginative situations, but at the same time drawing attention to kind of social concerns. So it'll be a little bit of a, a contrast to some of the uh, works of anime that we've shown at, at International Cinema. Maybe kind of the, the full-blown, you know, romanticism of your name is really not what you're getting here. <laughs> well, a little bit less fantasy too, maybe, right? Less, less fantasy uh, and more kind of social realism. But it's, it's a good film to check out if you want to really kind of understand uh, the different ways that Japanese animation in particular has kind of developed and really kind of the potential of animation to comment on uh, social conditions. Yeah, that's right. And this is a, a new restoration of, of the film. Uh, it's being re-released. And so it should, should be a, a great opportunity to see it again for the first time, right? Well, let's talk now about Too Late to Die Young. Uh, this is a film directed by Dominga Sotomayor Castillo, uh, who has the distinction of being the first woman to win the Locarno Film Festival Awards for Best Director. Kind of an interesting distinction. Marilor, what did you make of this film? So this film, it's, it's, it portrays a bohemian community, a group of artists, painters. There's a cello maker. And we don't really know what brought them together other than they seem to have lived away from the Pinochet dictature for the past many years in this makeshift community where they, they live together in some kind of symbiosis that can be very f fragile at times. The, the film focuses on, on three characters, three younger characters two teenagers and then a, an early teenage um, herself. So there's Sophia, a 16-year-old girl who Lucas is desperately in love with, but his love is unrequited. And then Clara, a younger character who is consumed by the loss of her dog, Frida. Um, so this film, it's, it's a slice of, of life. It seems that dialogue is not everything that tells the story. It's mainly like the looks. And um, there's a pace to the film that is very much not hurried. And everything is, is very important. The story is told in so many different ways because the, the dialogues are, are pretty minimum, it seems. Um, so the focus is on the daily life, and you, you can tell that, I mean, knowing the historical context, there's a shift from dictatorship to democracy, and it's interesting to understand or feel this as the film goes on. A few things that I would encourage you to look for is um, to look what is stable in this film and what is not stable. What may collapse at like the this little push and how the characters are, are conflicted. Look at how the film starts and how it ends. It seems like it's a very nice like way to just tie up things and what, what is the meaning of those ending and I mean beginning and ending scene. Some some homes look at the homes as well in in that community. There's a home that's very interesting that we seems to come back to a lot, and that home is only the framing of the house. There is no wall. There is some kind of a plastic cover. The the characters, the family is showering outside. The cows or the manger is in the living room. And so you see those cows eating. So just there's a feel to this film that is very unique and very interesting. 
I think you mentioned this about, you know, looking at what, what's stable and what's not. I think that's a really, a really good point. This is something that I noticed, you know, from the very beginning that you have this interesting style where a lot of times the camera gives you a frame and it's up to the, the actors to move in and out of that frame. The, the camera's not going to move to meet them. And it really does communicate this, as you mentioned, kind of slice of life, right? And to the point that at times you're, you're watching scenes and there's something very visually engaging about them, but you don't always know exactly how it ties in, right? It's not like this is making a, a concentrated political message one way or the other, right? Uh-huh. Absolutely. Okay. Well, the last film for this week is Honeyland. This is a documentary, a documentary that has the distinction of being the only film that's been nominated both in the best foreign film category for the Oscars, as well as best documentary. It didn't win either of them, but that's a unique distinction to have have crossed that, that boundary. The basic plot of this documentary, if we want to talk about it as a plot, is that you follow the the life of Hadzidzi Muratov, who lives deep in the Balkans in in an isolated area. She's the last in the line of Macedonian wild beekeepers. Uh, You follow her life, and there's a nomadic family that moves in next door to her. Uh, They kind of help her and her isolation. There's kind of a positive dimension to it. She forms this relationship with the family, but there's some neg- negative consequences as well that they don't understand uh, entirely how uh, she struck this uh, interesting balance between her and the bees that she keeps. And so this is this is what the, the documentary uh, is about and how it plays out. Uh, this is a documentary without talking heads. You, you don't get a voiceover that comes in to tell you what to look for. And yet it's about so many different, interesting and, and pressing sorts of things. Uh, a lot of our viewers will be familiar with the fact that there's been a real crisis in terms of honey production in, in recent years. Uh, this colony collapse disorder uh, that's struck particularly hard here in the United States, but but also globally is a phenomenon where entire colonies will simply die off. And it's been really difficult to get at why this is happening because there doesn't seem to be any one single cause. It's, it's the collective pressures that are being put on domesticated honeybees, you know, to trying to get them to, to live and to produce in, in ways that simply run against their nature. That seems to be what, what's going on. Here in contrast, we have the keeping of wild bees. And the way that she keeps wild bees is a far cry from the kind of industrial beekeeping and honey production that we see going on a lot of times here in the United States. And so you begin to understand that there's a different relationship that one has with, with the bees when you have different kinds of commercial constraints, if you have different kinds of expectations and a different economy uh, that exists around it. This film was shot over the course of three years with a skeleton crew. Uh, they accumulated over 400 hours of footage. And what's kind of interesting is that the, uh, the directors, uh, Stefanov and Kodevska, neither one of them speak Turkish. And so the, they didn't actually have access to what the people were saying most of the time when they were filming. And they were, of course, very well aware of this, and they were working largely off of visual cues. And consequently, the film works that way as well. 
we of course have subtitles so that we can understand what's being said. But it's interesting to think of this film as being constructed visually. And it's using this kind of direct cinema approach. And so one of the things to think about as you're watching this is how does the film go about making its points? It's not going to make it by telling you. It's not going to make it by by spelling it out in, in all the details that we have to we have to deduce this from like I said, the, the visual style and, and the arrangement of things. Other things to watch for is to watch for this connection between Hatidza and, and the bees. You know, what is this connection and why, why does this work? That what, is the, what are the assumptions that she has uh, either explicitly articulated or, or implied about the relationship to natural resources, to genetic diversity? Uh, how is this maybe about the changing climate without ever really talking about the changing climate, about human greed and about how we relate to the, the, the things around us? The big point, I think, that comes out of this film, and I think the reason why it resonated with so many people and critics, is that it's all about how humans are entwined with nature in different kinds of ways, but it doesn't do it, like I said, through a, you know, through a preaching at you, you know, kind of style that we're left to, uh, to understand that the, the good and the bad that's in uh, humanity, and it's not so simple that humans are, are bad and nature is good, which is something that I think we hear a lot in different kinds of, of nature documentaries. It's, it's much more complicated than that. And I think that the film is uh, very appropriately, you know, represents that. The director said this, uh, this is something to think about as well. The families here use an ancient Turkish vernacular. So the film is driven by visual narration rather than dialogue. The characters are understood through their body language and their relationships and their emotions. This visual and visceral communication draws the audience closer to the protagonist and more importantly, closer to nature, engendering the feeling that we as humans are but one species among many equally affected by the circumstances around us, close quote. So these are a few things to, to think about as you're watching Honeyland, which I think you'll enjoy. Okay, thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU, which is supported by the BYU College of Humanities. The hosts and guests of this podcast are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here, as they don't necessarily represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. Thank you to Jojo Hegstrom Pratt, our sound engineer, for help and support. Look for our Week in Review episodes for discussions about the films that have already played, where we talk a little bit deeper about the films. Once again, if you're a current student, faculty, or staff here at BYU, you can get access to our virtual IC program by following the instructions listed at ic.byu.edu. In the meantime, stay safe, and even amid the social distancing and dissolution of society as we have known it, keep watching great films. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mario. Thank See you. Next time.